As we continue in worship to God this evening, I invite you to turn with me, if you, if you have a copy of the scriptures, to the last book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation and chapter 3. This is not our principal text this evening. Our principal text is Matthew chapter 25, but, but I'd like to read these first several verses of Revelation 3 as these verses present to us a theme very similar uh, to what we'll be taking up tonight. That's Revelation chapter 3, and we'll commence our reading there at the first verse. Friend, this is the inerrant, infallible word of the living God. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received, and heard, and hold fast, and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And if you would turn with me, um, or take up the, the orders of service that you've received when you came in, uh, we take up now Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. It's printed also on the back of the order of service there. And this evening we'll be reading all of the first 13 verses. Matthew 25, uh, verses 1 to 13. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise, and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you, uh, but go ye rather to them that sell, and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage And the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, 
For ye know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. As far as the reading of God's holy word, may he bless us richly under it this evening. Well, friend, as we continue our time in Matthew 25, I think it's right for us just to remember that what the Lord Jesus presents to us here is a weighty, it's a solemn theme. It's a solemn theme, but in our generation, I would also submit to you it's a neglected one. The truths that are contained in these 13 verses are are things, I think, that really have been left into the wayside. Left, even though in previous generations these things gripped the church of God. And so we take up this text this evening with that in mind. Uh, Here Christ presents to us hard things, uh, but things necessary. Necessary for our hearing. Now, friend, as you look at Matthew 25, of course, we encounter a parable. Here, Christ is illustrating something for us, and he takes, he takes an image that would have been very well known to all of his audience in the first century. You remember, perhaps, that this is Tuesday, 2,000 years ago, on the same week that Christ would be crucified. This is among his final discourses to his disciples. And it's in that context that he takes up this imagery of a marriage feast, imagery of a wedding. And so he tells the story. There were ten virgins there with the bride on the evening before the wedding ceremony. Again, this was very customary. And as the story continues, a messenger goes before the bridegroom, goes to the bride's house and and tells them all that the bridegroom is drawing near. And and so these ones with the bride are to light their lamps and they're to go out and meet the bride and and to meet the bridegroom and also his servants. And, And then together they would go into the house of the groom's father. And there the marriage would be formalized consummate, and then, of course, seven days afterward of feasting. Everything about this parable really is quite straightforward. It's quite conventional, except for that final detail that you and I find. There are ten virgins at the start, but only five go into the bridegroom, his father's house. Only five go to the feast. That, friend, would be a staggering thing for somebody to hear at this time. And certainly it is staggering. Here, you and I have a picture, as Christ tells us, of the kingdom of heaven. Here, you and I have a picture of, of, in other words, what the church of God is like. There are many who will go with Christ into the marriage supper of the Lamb. But there are many who, notwithstanding all of their professions of faith in Christ, notwithstanding the fellowship that they enjoyed in the church while on earth, notwithstanding their reputation among men of being Christians, this parable tells us that even many of them will be like the five foolish virgins who are shut out of the last day. This is the solemn theme that Christ presents to us this evening. Well, as we continue our our examination of these verses, we come to verse 3, where Christ now explains to us something something more about these ten virgins. He says, first of all, in that third verse, 
that they that were foolish took their lamps, and they took no oil with them. Now before, if you look back at the second verse, Christ has already told us that there are five that are wise and five that are foolish, even if perhaps from, from the vantage point of those present, you couldn't make a difference between them. Christ says internally there's a real distinction. Well, now in this third verse, we see how that distinction is made visible. Now, as it were, we see foolishness on full display. The five foolish virgins, they took lamps, but not oil, not the vessels. And friend, the idea here is is that they intended to burn briefly. They intended to be a light just for a moment. And then we're told this, that while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. Again, this would have actually been quite customary at that time. Often it was the case that, that the bridegroom didn't come until, until the very late hours of the day. And we're told here that both the wise and the foolish slept. Though we'll consider that in a moment. Uh, friend, I want you to notice that this is not a criticism necessarily of sleeping. But it does highlight this much that the wise and the foolish slept very differently. The wise slept after their preparations. The foolish slept with very, very little. A friend, as I said to you already, this is a parable of the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be understood here as the commonwealth of those who profess faith in Christ. In other words, it's here a representation of of all of those who name the name of Christ, who call themselves Christians. And even more than that, friend, because Christ here takes up the imagery of virgins, as we saw last night, the imagery here is not of the nominal Christian. These are people who profess faith in Christ and who look the part. They look like Christians. The world would say these ones are Christians. And yet this parable tells us that many of them, many of them are true, and also many of them are false. In our text this evening, just verses 3 and 4, we find here that the false, or the foolish, here have little preparation for the final judgment. They have little preparation, but they think preparation sufficient. Friend, this teaches us very briefly that here we're told false Christians are content with slight preparations for eternity. In other words, those who who are in view in this text, the foolish virgin, the, the, the one who looks the part externally, the one who calls themselves a believer, these ones in the text are those who, who are contented with the smallest degree of piety, at least internally. I want us to see that in verse 3, first of all, as we get a glimpse of the character of their preparation. We're told here that they took their lamps, but, but no oil with them. Now, what were these lamps? Well, friend, in the, in the, of course, in the first century, their lamps were very different than ours. Uh, really, the idea, the image that you and I should have in our minds is, is that of a, a pole. And at the end of one, at one of its ends, you would have a cloth wrapped, and that cloth would have been dipped in oil. And the idea was, as that lamp was burning, you would need to continually, with another vessel, pour oil onto that cloth, because, of course, without it, 
the lamp wouldn't burn along at all. And so the idea here is, is that these, these five foolish virgins, they took a lamp, they took a pool, they took a cloth dipped in oil. And so it would burn. It would burn, and it would burn conspicuously against the darkness of the night. It would burn, and, and it would be very clear since it was raised on high that everybody could see it, but the point is it would burn briefly. It would burn conspicuously, but only momentary. Friend, what does that what does that show us? It should show us this much here that just as Christ likens one's profession of faith to a burning lamp, so friend, these virgins should be seen as those who make a profession about religion, make a profession of Christianity that looks looks even for a time as something bright, something that stands out something nevertheless that will not last. See, friend, what we're told here then is that there is a kind of false Christianity that might look the part for a moment, but it lacks substance. Now, you might ask, how can that be? Do the scriptures explain this to us in greater detail? And and indeed, they do. Uh, Friend, in fact, the scriptures portray to us this idea quite profoundly, but But before I even come to that, I I do need to make a note because, friend, I think we can read this parable and, and miss the gravity of what Christ is telling us. These false Christians who are in view, these ones who have a lamp that burns briefly and brightly for, for just a moment, these ones you and I are supposed to see here are those who have reputations for purity. These, in other words, are are Christians, again, as I've said already, they look the part. We're not dealing with with the guy or the girl who who had a religious experience, maybe whenever they were a youth, and they came up, they, they walked an altar, they prayed a prayer, and then they go out and they went out and they lived the life of a worldling. And you know the kinds of stories I'm referring to. You know that kind of person who says, well... You know, I, I asked the Lord to come into my heart years and years ago, but I suppose I'm a backslidden Christian because I've just lived in the world for decades and decades. Where's that Christian in our parable? Well, friend, the point is, the, the profound point is, that person isn't here. The nominal Christian is not in our parable. No, Christ is making a very different distinction. He's distinguishing between those who seemingly not only look like Christians, not only sound like Christians, but look like them. Christians who burned and seemed to burn brightly. A friend, allow me to return then to that theme. How is it that somebody could, could profess faith? How is it that somebody could, for a moment it seems, burn brightly for the Lord and yet not have the substance, that is, not really have genuine faith in Christ. The scriptures describe for us two kinds of faith that are not saving. The first kind of faith, you could, you could describe it as being historical faith. That's how our forebears described it. Historical faith means simply this, that somebody, 
Somebody assents to the truthfulness of the gospel. In other words, they, they hear of Christ that, that the Son of God was incarnate. He, he took upon Himself flesh. He was born of a virgin 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfect, a sinless life. And at Calvary, He died an atoning death, a death in the stead of His people to deliver them from the curse and the bondage of hell that they so rightly deserved because of their sin. On the third day, He was raised again and is now ascended on high as the high priest, interceding for His people as king ruling over them, as prophet there, of course, instructing them in His laws. Historical faith will believe all of that. They'll say, yes, I believe that's all to be true. But friend, there are two texts in Scripture that, that highlight that this is not a saving faith. James puts it to us this way. He says, Thou believest that there is one God. You're not like the pagans. You're not like those who, who bow down to Zeus, to Jupiter. You're not one who gives themselves over to the pantheon of, of the Norsemen. No, you believe in one God. And he says, Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. In one sense, you could say, friend, the devils also have faith, says James. It's not enough just to believe in the truth as is a historical reality. Even John, John chapter 3, records a very like instance. Perhaps you remember it. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he came to Jesus one day, and he said, Rabbi, we, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Friend, that's a wonderful thing, a wonderful profession. He recognizes there's something about Christ. Perhaps he was unclear of details, but he recognized something that was true. Christ indeed was a teacher, the teacher, the rabbi of his people sent from God. Do you remember how Jesus entertains him then? He says simply to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He wasn't yet saved. He believed in the truthfulness. But friend, he still lacked saving faith. You see, friend, I would submit to you that so many and our generation could come thus far. They say, well, yes, I, I see. I see in the creed, or, 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 or I hear as people tell me about the gospel that these things occurred 2,000 years ago, and I believe that there is a God, and I believe that Jesus is his son. But friend, all of that, as James reminds us, the devils themselves believe and tremble at a knowledge, a notional understanding of Christianity is insufficient. But I'd submit to you that that's really not the kind of thing we find in our text this evening. There's a second kind of, of faith that is not saving. And again, our forebears would describe that as a, as a temporary faith. I'll explain what that term means in just a moment. But, but I want you to notice that really that, that temporality is what Christ really is here urging. He, he's referring to those who who burned brightly for a time, and, and who appeared to be really, really, truly converted. That is, really Christians. And friend, as you look at the end of Matthew 24, that's the very idea Christ communicates to us. There's, there's there, you might remember, a, a, another parable where Christ describes an evil servant. But that's not how he begins. The, the servant in the master's house begins fruitfully. He begins seemingly a good servant, and then, after the master tarries, then he becomes an evil servant. Then you see the temporality of his religion. Well, in Matthew 25, you and I have the same idea. This, these ones, they burn brightly for a time. 
They went out with the other five wise virgins. They were together with them, seemingly, apparently. Do the scriptures speak of a kind of faith that looks like that, that is still not saving? And again, friend, the answer is yes. In the epistle to the Hebrews, Paul writes, he says, there are those who are enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. And yet, he says, were never converted. Just think for a moment what, what the scriptures are teaching to us there. There are those who were enlightened. That is, their, their minds were filled, as it were, with the word of God. They tasted of the heavenly gift. They had some kind of religious experience that was positive and, and seemingly replicated that which the sincere believer, believer himself had. They were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. In other words, when they sat under the word of God, they had some movement of spirit and, and they enjoyed in, in some external ways uh, some of the benefits that, that even the sincere enjoyed. And yet they were not, they were not converted. Christ describes these ones for us in Matthew 13. He says, these are those that received the seed in stony places. The same is, is he that, that heareth the word, and anon with joy he receiveth it. Note that, with joy he receiveth it. Yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For that's the image that you and I should have as we look at this text. This, again, is not your nominal Christian. It just you know, says he's a Christian, but, but obviously, even in, the, even in the eyes of the world, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't look like it. We're not talking about that person at all. We're talking about somebody who looks the part. We're talking about the kind of church members that you and I desire to see in our churches. Christ says among them, many are false and many are true. And here, friend, I just reiterate that you and I, we're not talking about a faith that can be lost. When we say a temporary faith, what we mean really by that is just that the evidences of that grace is temporary. The evidence of that faith will only reveal itself to be a temporary and external motion of God's spirit. The point is, these ones were foolish to begin with. They had no root in themselves. In other words, friend, they didn't lose something. They never had a thing to begin with. That's what Christ is showing us here. And friend, if, if one could be possessed of all of that, if they could have decades of burning brightly, having tasted, as the Apostle says, of the heavenly gift, even having some taste of the powers of the world to come and yet not truly be converted. Well then, friend, how much more does true faith lead the soul to rest and to tremble and adore the truth? We'll take up more what true faith looks like, God willing, tomorrow evening. I want you just to meditate on that for a moment. If a false faith can produce these effects, what should true faith produce in a truly gracious soul? Well, secondly and finally this evening, I want you to notice from verse 5 how the Lord describes for us 
the foolish virgins. Now again, in verse 5, we're told that both the wise and the foolish, they both slumbered and slept. And, and I suppose some would, would argue that the slumbering and the sleeping was, was sinful on both parts. But it's important to remember that we're dealing here with a parable, not an allegory. And Christ here does not reprove, it doesn't at all demonstrate any kind of sinfulness in, in the slumbering of the five wise virgins. And there's a reason for that. Because, friend, though the wise slumbered and slept, they were prepared. They could sleep. Because everything had been prepared. They had their oil and the vessels in their lamp. And so when at last the messenger of the bridegroom came, they were ready for him. They could sleep. But I want you to notice the five five foolish virgins, they slept as though they were prepared. They slept as though their provisions were sufficient. And friend, as we think about that, surely here what the Lord is teaching us is that these five foolish virgins were so because they trusted in their slight preparations. They were content with the very small provisions. They thought they were fine. And friend, as this again communicates to us something of the false Christian, something of the one who, again, seems to burn brightly for the Lord, this teaches to us that those same ones who are truly foolish, who are not sincere, well, they will also rest contented in their slight, their slight profession, their slight preparations for eternity. Friend, these ones are false Christians that are contented with any measure of piety, any measure of godliness. Now, again, God willing, tomorrow evening we'll take up what, what true godliness looks like in this parable. But I want us to meditate just briefly for the remainder of our time on these ones, what they were contented with. Now, friend, as you look at this text, you and I should be drawing a contrast with what Christ describes as being genuine piety. In Matthew 11, he describes the kingdom of heaven being taken by the violent. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. He says, these are those who are zealous. These are the ones who really are saved. He says, the truly converted are those who are violent, that is, possessed of a holy zeal. And friend, as you read throughout the epistles, you'll find that that same theme is taken up. Just to give you an example from the Apostle Paul again, he says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which were before, I I press toward the mark for the the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Note what Paul is saying there. He's not saying this so that you and I can can think about him and and just because we have some interest in religious biography, meditate on how, how wonderful his character was. That's not why Paul's telling us this. He's giving us a picture of his character because this is the character of genuine grace. Friend, what he's teaching to us here is that, that he was possessed of that holy zeal that Christ described as taking heaven by force. And even in the text that we read from Revelation, you get that same idea. 
Who are those that, that, that enjoy for, eternal, for, for eternity the blessings of God in heaven? Christ describes them as those who have overcome. The true Christian is an overcoming soul. The true Christian is one who is a pressing soul that is pressing through all kinds of sin and temptations and worldliness. The true Christian is one who takes heaven by force. But friend, are we teaching here a kind of perfection for the believer in this life? Or maybe you might be asking, are, are, are we teaching here that, that, that one can earn salvation by works? And the answer to both questions is absolutely not. What Christ is showing us here in the parable of the ten virgins is that the five foolish virgins lacked something. They lacked that holy zeal. They lacked that holy violence that would make them yearn for more and more grace. That would make it so they weren't content with a kind of compartmentalized religion. They lacked that kind of inward disposition that always strove after greater and greater godliness. And so they sat comfortable in their form of Christianity. They weren't pressing forward as the Apostle Paul. And surely you couldn't describe them as overcoming anything. They had their measure of purity, their reputation, their place in the church, their service in the church. And they were content with where they were. Friend, that's here in the scriptures described for us as a faith that burns, but only momentarily. It's not a genuine work of grace. And so, friend, what this text reminds us here is that a work of grace, by contrast, is something that is truly overcoming. How is it that those who have true faith overcome the world? Is it because of their, their, their willpower, their resolve? No, no, they overcome the world, says John, because they were born of God. In other words, friend, what this parable teaches us is that the five wise virgins, they were duly prepared. Friend, because by their own disposition, they were wise. The true Christian, friend, he, he strives after greater holiness because God has given him a disposition for it. Where the five foolish here are those who are content with a measure. And so the text asks us a very basic question. It asks a question of us, you and me both. And the question is, are, are we contented? By that, I don't mean are we contented with our station in life. We should be a people contented in that regard. I'm asking, are, are we contented with our our godliness? Are we contented with our religion, our piety? Have we, in other words, brought our Christianity to a point where it's respectable? It, it suits our needs. And you don't want to go any further, even if you don't want to go any less either. Friend, this text is an alarming text because it says that that kind of contentment, 
that kind of willingness to rest, to rest in our own, our own measure of godliness or piety. My friend, it's a dangerous sign. My friend, you see, you see in our generation how prevalent this kind of thing is, don't you? If the preacher begins preaching, saying that, that really we should be given more to prayer, uh, where, where is the fasting in our generation? What, uh, how often are you attending the means of grace? What, what measure of zeal are, are you striving to attain to? As soon, as soon as those kinds of questions are asked, men and women become, well, friend, they, they can start to bristle. I, I'm quite content, thank you, with where I'm at. And maybe, maybe I'm describing some of you this, this evening. Friend, at one stage, certainly I was. I was of that number. You see, there are many. There are many who come to a point in their Christianity where they look the part, they have the name, and that's all the further they want to go. So allow me to ask you something of another question. Maybe if you're a forward-thinking person, you might ask, you know, where will you be in in a year, five years, 15 years from now? When you ask those kinds of questions, friend, behind that, do do you consider godliness? Do you, do you have hopes and aspirations that, that you would be more conformed to Christ-likeness in a year from now than you were last year? For all the things that you're longing for in the future, is, is it a greater growth of grace that you desire, or are, or are you contented? Maybe somebody says, well, well yes, I am contented, but I'm, but I'm, I'm just backslidden. Friend, that might be the case, but, but let's, say, let's say that is the case for a moment. Are you concerned that you're backslidden? Are you concerned that you've grown contented with your own degree or measure of godliness? That you're no longer pressing toward the mark? If that concerns you, that's a good sign, but friend, if it doesn't concern you, then, then this text needs to alarm you. If it doesn't concern you at all, that if you if you feel as though you can rest in that, then there there are greater problems there. If you think I'm fine, I, I don't need to grow in prayer. If you don't think that you have great sins that you need to mortify, if you don't have greater and more earnest longings for holiness, friend, this text certainly is an awakening one for us. So as we close, there is an exhortation here. The exhortation, first of all, is if you are, friend, a sincere Christian, then this text is to awaken you. It's to awaken you. You and I, we should not rest until we are quickened. Driven, as it were, from our compartmentalized, contented sense of our own attainments in Christianity. We need to be more like the Apostle Paul, driven more and more. And until that drive is there, friend, until that drive is there, our peace will not be settled, at least not on good ground. 
But the exhortation for those who are more listless, indolent, for those who have rested content in a show of piety. Friend, this text is also an urgent call. The urgent call is to awake because you're not ready. You're not ready. If I can press just this point home a bit further. Friend, this text, this text forces you and it forces me to remember that a work of grace, a genuine work of grace, is a truly remarkable thing. And friend, if that work has not been done in you, you should not rest. And you should not rest until God has indeed given it to you. Amen.